Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Dr. Peter McCullough, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. How's it been, man? It's been a little while since we last talked. It has so much has taken place. You know, on April 10th, 2023, President Biden, a month early from scheduled, ended the emergency declaration for COVID-19. Now we need um, uh, HHS Secretary Bashara to drop the public health emergency. But Americans are ready for COVID to be over with. I know I am and move on, but there's still so many lingering issues. Now, when that when that all drops, what changes exactly? What is like what's still intact, I guess, about COVID that's really being restricted for some people? What's supposed to drop is actually all emergency countermeasures. Countermeasures is a military term. The COVID-19 crisis has basically been handled like a national security operation, almost as if we've been invaded by a foreign army. In this case, it's a foreign virus. And so these emergency countermeasures should all be dropped. But uh, FDA Commissioner Califf has said the vaccines aren't going to be dropped. Uh, there just appears to be no mention of dropping remdesivir or other emergency use authorized products. The only thing I can tell you is that it may have encouraged some organizations to drop vaccine mandates. We've seen a few more colleges come out and say they're dropping the mandates. Um, I, I think when the money stops flowing for these emergency countermeasures, you'll see all kinds of sweeping changes. Now, when it comes to those vaccine mandates, I mean, how many people are still enforcing vaccine mandates? I remember in the beginning, a bunch of like first responders and everything were also dropping out because they were being forced to take a shot. And there's even a site out there that's called antivax.com, which reports vax or anti-vax deaths. Some of those people, if you read those articles, are two shots. And I'm like, what are we considered unvaccinated? I mean, I thought unvaccinated beginning was getting just nothing. You didn't get a shot at all. And then now it was like, no, if you had two shots, but if you didn't have the most recent shot, you were considered unvaccinated. And I'm like, you're just confusing everybody. It, it's true. Well, we have some recent data. It's notable to point out that the COVID states project had been completed. That's Northeastern University and Harvard. And they did a survey, about 25,000 people. They actually got to the bottom line of who's vaccinated and not. Answer, 25% of adult Americans haven't taken any COVID vaccine, none. 75% have had one shot or more. That's very different than the CDC website. The CDC says that 92% of Americans have taken a shot. And what the COVID states project figured out is that uh, the CDC was double counting people. If people, somebody went into CVS and Walgreens, if they couldn't find their old vaccine card, they start a new card and just count them as a new patient. So the CDC system was double counting people. That 25% is an important number because the 25% who didn't take the vaccine, they tend to be kind of bigger and stronger people out there in terms of their voice, uh, You know, tend to be active voters, issue people. And uh, I think they're going to be very important in an upcoming election. Remember, with elections, at the most, 60% of Americans vote, at the most. So if it's 25% of that 60%, it's nearly half of people for them, the COVID-19 vaccine is a major issue. Now, over the past year since we last talked, what's more surprising to you? Is it the medical professionals that are still kind of pushing the va vaccine? Or do you find it, I guess, interesting that the people that got the vaccine in the first place are even now doubting the vaccine? After a lot of, I think, articles now, and especially Elon even buying Twitter, I'll ask you about that later. But I think more people are starting to see little vaccine deaths or just what they would call suspicious drop dead deaths. And now everyone's having questions. It's true that the public awareness is really growing. Let's take the doctors first. 
on my Substack Courageous Discourse. By the way, all the citations I'll give will be on Courageous Discourse Substack. I encourage you to check it out. Uh, you know, certainly join as a free member or support as a pain member. But uh, let me say that uh, I was stunned to find out that Blue Cross Blue Shield was giving major financial bonuses to doctors if they pushed the vaccines. Now, listen to this. Uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield said, if doctors can get 75% of their patients COVID vaccinated, they would give, let's say for a typical doctor would have like 2,000 Blue Cross patients, easy. They would give a quarter million dollars bonus to that doctor, a quarter million dollars. That's third quarter of 2021, Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield. This is stunning. You know, I thought doctors were in some type of psychological trance. Now I realize, holy smokes, they were receiving massive financial bonuses to push COVID-19 vaccines. That's the reason why specialists and all these people who were, were not even close to being infectious disease doctors were pushing the vaccines. They were going for the money. And the money that Blue Cross Blue Shield got almost certainly came from the federal government. The uh, White House, Biden White House, and the HHS uh, uh, in 2021 declared the COVID Community Core funding program. $13 billion flowed to the media, Hollywood, sports teams, health systems, insurance companies. I mean, it was amazing. The NFL took money, the NFL. And you know, several months later, the NFL uh, enacted their COVID vaccine policy, August of of 2021, they ran it to March of 2022 and claimed 95% of the players were, were vaccinated. Players, the players didn't want the vaccines. They already had COVID. Now we have, uh, you know, several notable athletes, uh, defensive linemen with blood clots, uh, Damar Hamlin, Buffalo Bills, cardiac arrest on Monday Night Football. It's been an absolute disaster. And it's, you know, it's funny when the organizations drop the vaccines, they just drop everything. So when the NFL dropped the vaccines in March of 2022, they dropped all COVID protocols, everything, as if COVID didn't exist. And so the last football season, there was no mention of COVID, none, as, as if it was gone. Now, you mentioned something, and it's on your Substack as well, too, but it's uh, vaccine batches like side effects, how they can, I guess, vary from severities. And I would think, obviously, it's probably case-by-case -case basis. All people are a little bit different. But when it comes to, I remember there were vaccine batches that were getting pulled or stopped. Like Johnson & Johnson had one in the beginning that was taken off the market. I'm like, how many of these weren't caught and just released out there into the public? Could that be some of the side effects as well, too, and some people going through some severe side effects? We had hints of this going on. Sasha Ladipova, investigative reporter, had done her own analysis, published it on TrialSite News. It looked like safety events were clustering with certain lots of Pfizer Moderna. Now this a paper by Schlemming from Denmark blew this thing wide open. It's in the peer-reviewed literature. It just hit my Substack. This is stunning. They divided the, the batches into high-risk, medium, and low-risk. Now, fortunately, the high-risk batches where the side effect rates of serious events, hospitalization and death, were through the roof, only comprised 4.2% of doses, but they were the super loaded ones. Then there's an intermediate group, which is pretty low. Then there's a very low risk group where it's almost like getting a saline injection. Nothing happens, nothing. And that's about 32%. So that graph on my Substack, everybody needs to take a look at it. That is a stunning revelation. 
And the leading theory here is that the vaccines don't undergo any inspections for quality and purity. They're made by biodefense contractors by subcontract through Pfizer and Moderna. And there, the lipid nanoparticles must aggregate that we know they don't have the same density, so they tend to float to the top. And so there must be some batches and then the vials derived from them that are super loaded with messenger RNA. And there must be others that have virtually none in it. You know, it's either that theory or what you're suggesting is contaminants, that there's some type of dangerous contaminant in it. But looking at the peer-reviewed published literature of the vaccine deaths and the autopsies, it looks like it's the former. It looks like some people are getting super loaded uh, injections because those who die have just a massive amount of inflammation and spike protein in their heart, the brain, the other organs. On my substack is a 14-year-old Japanese girl. Take shot one, it does okay. Shot two, a little sick. Take shot three. She literally can't breathe that night. Her sister said she couldn't breathe and she's dead the next morning. Has an autopsy. Every organ in the body is absolutely destroyed with inflammation. It's that potent. She must have gotten one of these super lethal doses. Now, you usually hear when someone says like, oh, if you got the shot, it probably lessens your symptoms if you would have got COVID. And I was like, well, how do you know that? You don't have like future technology to predict if me getting a vaccine or something like that could predict if my symptoms would be less. But if we talk about the vaccines causing damage to someone, is that just because of the spike protein? Is it making their immune system weaker? And is it just putting more stress on their body, causing it to attack itself? That's true. That's actually the the um, findings of Dr. Polycretus and colleagues from Italy, and I've joined as a co-author of several publications, where it's so abnormal for the human body to produce Wuhan spike protein in our own cells and express on cell surface, our body immediately attacks itself. There is an autoimmune attack that occurs with each shot. It's just a matter of how severe it is. And furthermore, when the spike protein breaks free and it circulates in the bloodstream, it can be lethal. Now, a paper by Castri Yuta and colleagues shows that the messenger RNA is circulatory in the bloodstream for a month, the messenger RNA, so it lasts way longer than what we thought. It's not broken down by ribonucleases. And Ogata had previously sh studied, showed from Harvard, the spike protein is circulatory at least a month, maybe longer. Now, a paper by Yonker and colleagues from Harvard showed in kids in Massachusetts General Hospital with myocarditis. Now, keep in mind, there should be no kid in any hospital with myocarditis. Kids ought to be going to school. They shouldn't be hospitalized because they've taken a vaccine. But in fact, kids hospitalized with myocarditis, this is an important paper, who are being damaged, they had circulatory spike protein in the bloodstream, but the antibodies were not neutralizing it. So the antibodies were missing the target. Whereas the kids who took the vaccine are fine, they had spike protein and the antibodies were appropriately neutralizing the spike protein. So I think we're learning a lot about vaccine injuries and deaths as the data roll on. But boy, the, the American public and the worldwide population it is, in a sense, basically an entire research population right now. Now, if talk about academic integrity, but some of these people that are publishing some of the articles that you mentioned for certain universities, now, are they getting backed by some of their universities for talking about this? Because I think in the beginning, they, nobody really got back to go against really the narrative saying so many articles I could find on ResearchGate or anything like that were talking about how good the vaccines were and how much it handled COVID and a bunch of things that we know that aren't true, even talking about the how getting the vaccine would stop you from getting COVID. And we know that's not true. If anything, they say it lessens their symptoms, but I don't really necessarily believe that either. Um, 
but is it the universities now backing some of these people that are going out and kind of saying what a lot of independent researchers were saying in the beginning, doctors that put their careers on the line, trying to stand up and say, hey, this is not how we do medicine. We can look at the science here. It really depends on the conclusions. Yeah, I look at the papers very carefully as a former editor of two major journals. Uh, many of the papers that are giving data, like the Yonker paper that I quoted, they actually conclude that the vaccines have, have, have had a major impact in curbing the, the, the pandemic and vaccines have saved lives. They kind of throw these platitudes in there in order to get the paper across the finish line, but the data suggests the vaccines are, are, are dangerous. Uh, we see that pattern in the literature. Remember, almost all the academic medical centers took federal money, and the federal money says promote the vaccines. So the, the vast majority of the literature is contaminated. There are paper after paper with quick assumptions that the vaccines are safe and effective without supporting data. We see that's that's absolutely riddled through the literature. The papers that are really revealing things, like the Schlemming paper on the lot analysis, they're coming from independent scientists who really are not under the corporate control of a university or a health system or a medical school, that they're able to give their independent analysis. So uh, you know, it's mixed. Literature is mixed. There's tremendous suppression. There are papers that once they're fully published, contracted, copyrighted, that the journals receive so much pressure, we presume, from the biopharmaceutical complex. The biopharmaceutical complex, it's in my book. Uh, you know, I mentioned it, it includes the World Economic Forum, the Gates Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, Rockefeller Foundation, WHO. The elites of the world. That be, Yeah. You know, and 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 the uh, they receive so much pressure through consultants, um, through uh, you know, through activated academic doctors. The journals get assailed when there is a damaging paper to the vaccine campaign, and some of the journals have retracted papers. I've had two papers retracted, essentially breach of contract acts by the publisher. Now the Skidmore report, which had the vaccine mortality rate estimate for the first year of the campaign at 278,000 Americans died with the vaccine, uh, being fully published in BMC infectious diseases, peer review, copyrighted figures, everything set. It's a done deal. Now the journal is attempting to retract this uh, paper after receiving external pressure. And we want to find out who. Is it the FBI? Is it the CDC? The, F the FDA? Uh, scientist who's putting pressure on the journal to retract it. The journals never retract papers unless there's, you, you know, uh, you know, obviously a falsification of data or some other charge. But the journals have not made that charge. I've had a paper retracted by uh, Elsevier on myocarditis, and, and they say it's for administrative reasons. There's no valid scientific reason they're even putting forward. So this is just straight out corruption, breach of contract. And I think influencing pedal by the vaccine syndicate. Do you think that right now that it's still corruption about money? Do you think at this point it's about not being liable for all the damages that they did do for the number of people that did die because of the vaccine? The money is so big, it's hard to ignore it. I mean, just look at some of these personal stories. Let's take a CEO of Moderna, Stefan Bainzel. Bainzel. He was a pharmaceutical rep in Belgium and for Lilly, then he becomes uh, like a regional director in Brussels. In 2007, he joins BioMU and suddenly he's the president of BioMU from 20, 
2007 to 2011, and he gets the, the, the contract job to build the biosecurity annex level four in Wuhan, China. Stefan Bainzel, he becomes a billionaire. He becomes a billionaire while being CEO at Biomer U. Then in 2011, he joins Moderna. He joins Moderna and starts working on the patents for the COVID-19 vaccine. They issue three patents uh, long before the COVID crisis ever occurred. And they actually co-patented the vaccine with the U.S. National Institutes of Health. Through that time, Benzel's net worth continues to accrue. Then in their first year of sales, Moderna earns $100 billion. And uh, uh, Benzel has, a, I think, a, a 6% stake in the company. Stefan Benzel, he's bigger than Trump financially. He's bigger than a lot of people uh, out there who consider themselves wealthy. I mean, the corruption and the money uh, you know, cannot be ignored. You saw, um, you saw uh, uh, Australian journalist uh, Avi Yemeni, who was dogging uh, Albert Borla through the streets of Davos, asking him some really tough questions. And Borla, he was looking for doors as quick as he could find them. He just did not want to face any questions from the media. None of these vaccine company CEOs have faced a tough question. I was so disappointed with Rand Paul. He had um, a Moderna CEO Banzel right in the hot seat. He could have asked him about his involvement in building the Chinese biosecurity lab, the Moderna patents before the virus came out. He could have asked Moderna for their 90-day post-marketing data, which they still haven't released. Instead, he, uh, Benzel gets a bunch of softball questions and gets out of that. No problem. Did you listen to Rand Paul probably a little while ago when he was uh, having Anthony Fauci? He was, I guess, debating Anthony Fauci, but he was talking tough questions to Anthony Fauci. And I think that's when the public really saw that Anthony Fauci didn't have the answers that everybody had been saying that he had the answers for. I mean, he doubled down on a lot of stuff, but then there's even statements that he's made previously where he said, I never made those statements. And people just clip it right up and say, you know, you did make those statements, which I mean, it's not just damage against Anthony Fauci, but the real damage is to the medical institutions. I mean, the number of people that were complicit in taking money and also doubling down on this, but also how do you expect people to trust medical professionals ever again after all of this? I mean, I'm guessing this is how business has always done, capitalism, corruption, greed, all these types of things. But this is the biggest exposure on something that was in the beginning. I mean, whether it was fear scaring into everybody saying that, you know, everyone you love is going to die. It was going to be like a Thanos snap in the beginning. I remember that. But there is now at this point, everyone doesn't know what to do. It feels like at this point, they can't trust anybody, even the news, anything that was complicit in all this. It's so true. You know, I think the House Select Committee on the origins of the coronavirus made more progress than Rand Paul with Fauci and there, James Comer, as well as uh, Chip Roy and others, uh, what they really found out uh, through a series of witnesses, I think the most revealing was former CDC director, Dr. Redfield, is that the virus for sure came out of the lab in Wuhan. There's no doubt about it. Now, they've been saying it for years, man. That, well, listen, the National Security Administration, you know, capitulated Department of Energy, FBI, Redfield. Redfield said, yeah. It came out of the lab, and it was probably second or third quarter of 2019. So, you know, the question for Redfield they, they, they didn't ask is, well, if you knew in 2019, why didn't you tell us? I, I mean, what happened was uh, it turned out that Fauci and Collins had organized an academic team, and it was led by Jeremy Farrar out of the Wellcome Trust in the UK and Christian Anderson at Scripps and Edwin Holmes at University of Sydney, 
And they actually crafted a false narrative in the literature. They published 12 papers that said the vaccine came out of the Chinese market or you know arose in nature, intentionally trying to take attention off of the creation of SARS-CoV-2 by Ralph Barrick at the UNC in Chapel Hill. He designed SARS-CoV-2. He got the research grants. Uh, Peter Daszak shuttled the money and the plans over to the Chinese EcoHealth Alliance. The Chinese do the work in the Chinese lab and they create SARS-CoV-2. They actually took the virus and it's a chimeric. And in the in the Barrick papers where Menacheri is the first author, 2015, Nature of Medicine and Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences, they declare we did it. We, 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 we created the virus where it can invade the human respiratory epithelial tract. Before that, we had four beta coronaviruses. None of them could invade the body. They just formed colds. They were able to take one and make it more contagious and lethal. And they announced it and they published it in the papers. Fauci and Collins actually created a distraction for three years to take pressure off the National Institutes of Health uh, that this is a U.S. creation subcontracted to a Chinese biosecurity lab. Now, finally, everybody admits to it. And you saw the vote in the House. It was like 419 to zero to declassify the U.S. documents. Now, wait a minute. A month ago, the government narrative was we had nothing to do with that lab. That was the government narrative. And then suddenly now we're going to declassify all our documents about the lab. I mean, this is a stunning set of reversals we've seen. So I think the House Senate Select Committee, I've talked to Chip Roy personally myself a couple of times now. I think they've made great progress. And Americans right now ought to be asking some hard questions. What in the world are we doing with uh, biological threat research? What is BARDA doing? What is DARPA doing? Uh, why is it on the PREP Act website since 2005, this listing of biological threats in development, including SARS and anthrax and Marburg and uh, smallpox, monkeypox? Why do we actually have a development program where we're working on the biological threat as offense and we're working on the defense, which is monoclonal antibodies and vaccines? We ought to be asking that question. You know, we don't hear about nuclear missiles anymore. We don't hear about tanks and armor. Now we hear about biological threats and it keeps going. You know, President Biden this week announced the project next gen. $5 billion poured into more vaccine research, monoclonal antibodies. Again, you know, a pan-coronavirus vaccine. There seems to be no end to vaccine ideology right now. Do you think that this has always been an interest in bioweapons? I know we had the bioweapon test ban because I thought it was just basically ineffective when you're trying to launch it on a battlefield or just spread all around. But I mean, the recent interest into it, or has that been going on for a while? I mean, why are we just starting to get really interested in bioweapons? The interest may be more on defense. Uh, you know, when DARPA announced on their website in 2012, the ADEPT P3 program. It was a defensive program. They said they were going to use messenger RNA to end pandemics within 60 days. They were thinking about maybe our military troops getting sprayed with something and they were using messenger. It was very futuristic. But, but these government agencies are deep into biological threat research. And there, there are contractors, dozens and dozens, hundreds of them, that have been raking in government dollars now for a long time. 
And uh, I think all of it's going to come out with an investigation. You're right. For for offense, they may not be that, um, you know, effective as visualized right now. But boy, we learned with SARS-CoV-2, what a worldwide disaster it really uh, could be for populations, really screwed up the world for three years. Um, I think we need a deep dive on this. I think we should have a moratorium on any more messenger RNA vaccine research uh, because it's, it's, it's a disaster. Now news is breaking uh, that messenger RNA vaccines have been out for, for several years in the um, agricultural industry. And uh, people are, start a- are asking some serious questions. You know why they tried so hard? And I know the emergency use for the vaccine, but they tried so hard to limit all other medications where you couldn't even talk about anything. I mean, you still can't talk about ivermectin on YouTube, even though that you look at the CDC website, they've done studies now saying that that can actually be a usage to help treat some symptoms of COVID. I was like, yeah, but people have been saying that for years and you took them off platforms where they were just trying to help people that generally wanted an answer. I think the suppression of early treatment is in my book behind me, Courage to Face COVID-19. The suppression of early treatment was intentional to create fear, suffering, hospitalization, and death to promote mass vaccination. Those who are most intensively suppressing treatment, the CDC, the NIH, and FDA, were the ones who are massively pushing the vaccines. The American Medical Association and other medical organizations, the two are linked. Suppression of early treatment was intentional to force vaccines on people, to get them to accept vaccines. Now, early treatment itself is 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 uh, cohesive and certainly complementary to vaccines. Whether someone takes a vaccine or not, they still get sick. The vaccines don't work, so they still need early treatment. So, you know, early treatment is compassionate. It's medically necessary, clinically indicated in high-risk patients. The protocols are very advanced. They don't depend on a single drug. Turns out the most effective thing up front is nasal virucidal washes with dilute povidone iodine, dilute hydrogen peroxide, colloidal silver, now good data with xylitol. Whether you buy commercial products or make a home spray, uh, the nasal sprays are wonderful. They work for COVID, flu, and other colds. So that's been a big advance. Um, hydroxychloroquine, about you know over 300 studies, about 25% effective. Ivermectin, 45 clinical trials, several dozen government guidelines, you know, mandate, you know, suggest or mandate its use, about a 50% reduction in mortality in patients through outpatients. Uh, you know, featured study was the ICON multi-center study from Florida in 2020, published in CHEST, 50% reduction in mortality. So I, ivermectin should have been used in everybody. Um, uh, Paxlovid, the Pfizer EUA product, modestly beneficial in real-world data for one impressive clinical trial. That was undermined by the CDC. Never hear about it on TV. And then molnupiravir, the Merck product by Ridgeback Pharmaceuticals, again, modestly effective. It failed in a, in a large uh, real-world uh, trial. Uh, but that whole level of antivirals is undermined. The monoclonal antibodies were taken off the market intentionally and very aggressively by the FDA. Recent review by Kip and colleagues showed they were always safe and effective. Everything we did was undermined from the very beginning. Any forms of treatment, EUA, not EUA, generic, expensive, it didn't matter. All early treatment was undermined, I think, to promote the vaccines. What do you think that did the most damage to? Do you think it was the, the damage, I guess, to the public's reception of the medical advice of maybe what they should be taking and that maybe boost up how good the vaccines are? But also, I mean, even now, people are still – you talk about ivermectin. People label that horse paste still, and it's just still surprising to me is that you looked at how the media treated that. 
for so long, all of them calling it a horse paste or making fun of it in some sort where you just went, what are we, it's recommended. It had a Nobel prize and you start listing off everything it had. Nobody cared about that. It was all what this person said on CNN or this person said on Fox. And then it was gone. It's true. You know, ivermectin, uh, in my experience, I've used all the drugs, by the way, I'm not particularly wet at any given drug, but ivermectin, I think is the most dynamic of it. it took a while for us to find the right dose and duration. And the right dose is 0.6 milligrams per kilogram. So that's a lot more ivermectin than what most people took. Uh, someone your size probably would take 36 milligrams a day, for instance. Um, and the duration, five days, sometimes out to 30 days. We've got to continue in a long period of time. So uh, you know, primordial protocols you know, didn't consistently have the dose correct. But once we got everything lined up, ivermectin uh, very safe, very effective. By the way, safer than Tylenol, has fewer safety reports than Tylenol. So we know it's very safe. It's a human product. It's used for river blindness. It's used for uh, scabies. I've used it in my clinical practice for, for decades. If you were to go to Honduras, Central America, certain states in India, they would just hand it out to you if you got COVID. But yet in the United States, you'd go to the pharmacy to fill a prescription of ivermectin and, and the pharmacist would say, no dice, I'm not going to give it to you. you. You couldn't find two more opposite approaches to use of a drug. If doctors find drugs useful, that's called the community standard of care. If a doctor prescribes a drug, the pharmacist must give it to the patient. And we saw all kinds of corruption and laws being broken that hurt patients during the pandemic. Now, is there kind of switching over to a little bit of a different topic, but still on the same basis, but like long haul syndrome, People that have side or not side effects, but people that have like long kind of COVID in a sense that they've gotten over COVID, but they're still experiencing some symptoms. I mean, are we looking into that at all? Are we coming up with any medications that could actually help? We've learned a lot about long COVID. You know, recently a paper by Harvard by Clausen and colleagues, 94% of Americans clinically have had COVID. 97% have some form of immunity, meaning some had some clinical infection. So we've almost all been through it. Now, those serious enough to be hospitalized. About 50% have bona fide long COVID, meaning you know hair starts falling out, muscle loss, weakness, small fiber neuropathy, sleep disturbance, ringing in the ears, loss of uh, taste and smell. People are miserable. We now know the virus is in the body for a very long period of time. The autopsy studies show the virus is physically in the body and replicating at a low level for months. It's very important to realize. So it's a sickness. The spike protein as shown by Bruce Patterson at Incel DX, can stay in the body 15 months after. That's with COVID, no vaccine, just 15 months. So uh, it's a long, it's almost like getting Lyme disease where there's a, a, a you know an installation of uh, foreign antigens in the body. The biggest, uh, we, we've tried all different drugs. Personally, I've tried fluvoxamine, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, steroids. I've tried everything. What's really uh, coming out now in a preclinical study by Tanakawa and colleagues and uh, some some other uh, you know prior studies actually just with COVID the virus itself is that a Japanese supplement an innovation called natokinase, which is an enzyme that's produced by the fermentation of soy by a bacteria called Bacillus natto. That natokinase, this derivative, which has been available in this Japanese supplement for a couple of decades, dissolves the spike protein. And in the preclinical experiments, I mean, dissolves it. I mean, dissolves it. Doesn't appear to hurt cells or tissues. We know it's already safe in humans. So there is a big interest in natokinase. Probably the best in class product is offered by the wellness company. I advise that company. 
as a chief scientific officer, it's called Spike Support. It's all US sourced, uh, very high quality, has some additional uh, ingredients like black sativa um, uh, extract and, and other selenium and some other important um, components. Uh, but it'd be two capsules twice a day of the spike support. And right now, our anecdotal experiences takes about two months, but people start to get better with long COVID. It's anecdotal, I can't make any therapeutic claims, but it's looking pretty good. Now, when it comes to academic research or where we're getting good research about maybe new evidence about treatments and medications and things of sorts, but is that coming just from here? Or is it coming from other countries as well, too? Like who's pushing the lead charge on that? Mainly other countries. Uh, you know, the U.S. academic medical centers largely don't recognize long COVID or vaccine injury syndromes at all. So we're looking for innovation all over the world. Thank goodness, you know, the world's a big community in medicine. We're all connected through the peer-reviewed publication process. So we're picking up on innovation all over the world. The U.S. has been very disappointing. In fact, the U.S. has tried to suppress research. In our book, we have a chapter on the nasal sprays, for instance, where the U.S. FDA and the Federal Trade Commission really tried to suppress any research and tried to block companies bringing nasal sprays forward, even nasal sprays. The academic medical centers, Harvard, Duke, Mayo Clinic, they never had early treatment protocols. They didn't even treat a single patient early, and they never tried to improve inpatient care. Not at all. And they're completely absent, by the way, in the media, the press, commentary. You never see them. I'd love to talk to one of them about it. Like, like what did you do in the last three years? But none of them will come out of their, their, their hole right now. And I think many of them are walking a line of shame. Now, what was the biggest revelation for you since, I mean, before the pandemic even started, like, how are you thinking about the medical industry and everything going in and then at, during all this and now where we're at now? I mean, what are your thoughts on the whole medical industry? I mean, I started to notice how connected everything was. I mean, I knew about the media and the government. I think there's a stereotype that, you know, they kind of all say the same thing. All those Fox News just talks on CNN, CNN talks on Fox News, but they're all parroting from one giant corporation or something like that. But that's real because we saw that during the pandemic. We saw a lot of things that were unethical that these media outlets did and push certain things and are still pushing certain things where now you get an occasional thing like Woody Harrelson coming on. But even then, it's like so many people that saw that probably thought he was just nuts or something like that. But everyone that actually knew what was going on was listening, going, he's saying some real stuff right there, but he's got to do it in a joking form or they're going to yank him right off stage. It's so true. You know, I did observe over the last several decades a corporatization of medicine, things that become more regimented. Insurance companies had progressive control, electronic medical records, compliance training, more and more administration and bureaucracy for doctors. You know, I was witnessing all that, but I was pretty happy in my research life and was able to take care of patients the way, you know, I saw fit. And then COVID-19 changed my view of, of everything. For the first time, I saw doctors abandon their patients. And they let the virus slaughter their senior citizen patients, people with multiple medical problems. And we had 1.1 million Americans slaughtered, largely because doctors didn't step forward and help them early on at home survive the infection. Once they got to the hospital, it was too late. Then I saw the same doctors who abrogated their responsibilities. They, they literally dropped their Hippocratic Oath, and then they forced the vaccines on patients. They initially suggested, then they pressured. And in the end, many of them forced the vaccines. They told the patients, listen, I'm not going to have you in my office unless you take a vaccine. I'm not going to deliver your baby unless you take a vaccine. I saw the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology 
officially and strongly recommend the vaccines after they took a large government payment through HHS and the COVID Community Core Program. I mean, we never give experimental drugs ever to pregnant women, let alone brand new genetic gene transfer technology devised out of a biosecurity lab in Wuhan, China to American pregnant women. That was the most reckless, irresponsible thing to ever consider by the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And all the obstetricians in the United States largely went along with it. It was a catastrophe. Now we have data pouring in about uh, fetal loss, maternal complications. The CDC is reporting last month record maternal mortality, women dying during pregnancy or dying 42 days afterwards since the vaccine started. Now, I know we talked about stillbirths last time you were on. We, we had a little discussion about that. But I mean, I have friends that are trying to have a kid right now, can have a kid, whether they got a shot or not. But it's just there's a lot of issues already going on. And now there's people out there that are dying either during labor or are, I mean, are there kids being born with certain genetic defects as well, too? That is really noticeable because of a vaccine shot. It's true. A recent report by Thorpe and colleagues, I'm the senior author, shows a many-fold increased risk compared to the flu shot of having uh, miscarriages in the first trimester. Menstrual abnormalities are like 2,000-fold you know, elevated um, uh, maternal hemorrhage. And then on the baby side, intrauterine growth retardation, hydramnios, and, and actually fetal hemorrhage. So the Thorpe paper is the safety signal. That's the canary in the coal mine. There's about three dozen papers that take a very cursory look at it, largely by obstetricians who, you know, I think are honestly are, uh, they're compromised by this vaccine agenda through, through the ACOG or through HHS and the countermeasure funding. They're all in institutions that are getting government money. Those three dozen papers say, oh, the vaccines are safe in pregnancy. We, we can't claim that. We need years and years of observation. And nothing is ever given to pregnant women until it's, it's been on the market for many years and we know it's safe. Pregnant women are not low risk uh, for vaccine injuries, and they certainly uh, are low risk for COVID-19 complications. So paper by Pinellas and colleagues show that pregnant women have better COVID outcomes than non-pregnant women. So pregnant women should have never been targeted with a with a dangerous genetic vaccine. Uh, Ray Stricker and myself, Ray runs the largest fetal loss center in the United States. Uh, we published in 2021 and, and, re and reasserted that this year that the COVID-19 vaccines are pregnancy category X, meaning they should not be administered to pregnant women. Not a single pregnant woman should have gotten it. They were excluded from the original randomized trials for the FDA, the CDC, the Vaccine Administration, centers, the ACOG, the obstetricians to do this has been horrifying. Now we have the Thorpe paper, serious adverse maternal and fetal outcomes in the CDC data where women are dying with childbirth at record rates since the vaccines have rolled out. Now the WHO guidelines for who should be vaccinated, they changed those for, you don't have to vaccinate healthy kids, right? I think I saw an article about the Daily Mail that talked about that, which is, I mean, that's good that they stopped talking about healthy kids being vaccinated, but also they have a bunch of things that they still need to update as well too. That's true that, you know, the WHO, all the agencies have been spotty 
So WHO is now saying children, no vaccines. Remember the WHO in November of 2020 said no remdesivir, that remdesivir does not improve outcomes, causes kidney damage, liver damage. So WHO is right on that. They're very late on the vaccine call. WHO said no routine testing in the nose for travel or work. So they were right on that in 2021. But I think the fact that the WHO disagrees with the CDC that's a problem. The agencies should be relatively coordinated. Now you heard Switzerland this week completely drop recommendations for all vaccines, all ages. So I know the Swiss are cheering right now that there is no government support for vaccines. They're still making them available, but uh, I imagine no one's going to take them. Now, what? how do we get on the right track with this? Like, how do we start getting on the least track to where people can trust their medical professionals again? I mean, does this lead to independent medicine? Would that be an answer where we have doctors that are able to start their own, you know, businesses as well and be able to function with maybe smaller clientele, deal with a couple more, less patients maybe? You could probably handle them a little bit better, get to know your patients and their experience, be able to give better recommendations. I know that we've talked about that. I think a lot of medical professionals have talked about less of a patient load because they are overworked, but... I mean, the whole institution seems to be the problem, the way that the guidelines are and the influence that someone could just toss in a check. And next thing you know, your integrity as a doctor just goes out the window. I'm not saying everybody, but I'm saying when we see that. Boy, you mentioned that. Let me hit the last part. Uh, it's on my Substack. We, we ultimately intercepted a Blue Cross Blue Shield letter to a doctor. It's an incentive program, a vaccine administration incentive program last quarter of 2021. Typical doctor would have like 2,000 Blue Cross patients in his or her panel. That doctor, if they got 70% vaccination rates, would have gotten a quarter million dollar bonus. Quarter million dollars. So doctors were pushing these vaccines because of the money. And I think Blue Cross probably got the money from the Biden administration and HHS through the COVID Community Corps. This was federal money flowing to the insurance companies. So this, this financial corruption of the doctor uh, to push something very unsafe like vaccines is, is um, you know, I think is really damning for the medical profession. The doctor should return the money. They should immediately apologize. Any doctor who took, uh, took one of these large sum bribes to push the vaccine should immediately return the money. Now, what should be done? On December 7th, 2022, I testified in the Senate. I said, take all the vaccines off the market. First thing is, take the vaccines off the market so there aren't any stray people still taking them or recommend. They need to get off the market. Will Council for Health said that June 11th, 2022. Uh, uh, you know, they had plenty of time to be out there to see if they would do anything helpful. It's obvious they didn't. They've caused great harm. And then the second thing now is uh, we need to go through this period of of uh, repentance. People need to realize that what they did wrong, they need to seek forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness needs to be considered for those who are harmed, and then ultimately some form of amnesty. We're going to go through a prolonged justice phase where crimes were committed. I think people are going to be prosecuted for this. The two big crimes, by the way, are fraud and mass negligent homicide. So where things elevated to that level, and believe me, there's lawsuits on hospital care, remdesivir, vaccines, um, Pascal Nijwadi, a relatively notable international banker in Switzerland, has filed a direct criminal case against the Swiss Public Health Agency and the president of Switzerland. A direct case. He's filed the direct case. It's just not a monetary case. This is actually a criminal case that may have influenced the Swiss to just drop the vaccines. But um, I think you're going to see this going forward for medical practice. 
independent medical practice, I think is where it's going to go. Doctors, in a sense, are going to become like attorneys. They'll be paid privately, no connections to insurance. I've done that myself now. I'm in a, I've disenrolled from all the insurances, from Medicare. I, I, there will be no insurance company that will influence me on anything. And uh, patients are more than happy to pay a cash fee and then seek reimbursement afterwards or what have you. Um, but we, we're just not going to have any influence over insurance companies. Insurances still can cover labs and x-rays and surgeries and things like that. But I think the independent decision-making by the, the doctors, typically the primary care doctor, and then the, the key cognitive medical specialist, that's going to go cash-based. And you're right. That allows us to slow down. Remember, under insurances, we are under incredible pressure to see patients like, like in the factory, like a mill. Now we can slow down. Patients understand uh, and value what they're getting for their dollar. Are you getting a better public, I guess, reception now from everything kind of coming out a little bit more? It seems like now the information, it, you start coming across articles about vaccine deaths or things of this sort. And I think everyone kind of has it lingering in their head, even if they got two shots and a booster, there's kind of that question that gets asked. Uh, and also Elon buying Twitter. I mean, are you getting more views on your stuff as well too. people able to find you and actually be able to see because your Substack, like i said you post you post a lot in a day which i'm good for you man you create some great work but like i said i was looking through your Substack, which i do from time to time when you post something and you have it all laid out with graphs you have all the data there so it's not like before you couldn't find that anywhere you would look at main research journal sites which is what you need a major publication to really get credit behind you it's kind of like getting a movie on hbo or something but now it's turned to the point where we're all going to independent substacks of people that have a good amount of research or a good amount of credibility to look at what they're drawing to. And you not only post your own, but you also be able to show work of others as well too, to get them some attention, which is really important because someone like me is in the general public. Like I said, I've been out of COVID for so long uh, since basically around the time we last talked, I've been trying to keep up, but there's just so much information. It's like, well, what's this going to be in five minutes from now when they go the complete 180 on everything. So uh, what are your thoughts on just, you know, Elon buying Twitter and also your public reception on things? I can tell you that as we sit here today, I've actually given more media clips, more written analysis, three sets of U.S. Senate testimony, multiple sets of House and Senate state testimonies. I've actually given more media and public utterances than Fauci, Walensky, Ja, Murthy, Redfield, Califf, Biden, Harris, Trump, Pence combined. I'm the king. You're talking to the person who's given the most public statements on COVID-19. And you can't find a highlight reel where I'm wrong on major issues, where I'm making a bunch of wrong statements or flip-flopping back and forth. And yet all the people I mentioned, you can see them flip-flopping back and forth. You know, uh, Kamala Harris saying, I'll never take a vaccine developed under Trump. And then months later, they're saying, take a vaccine. And and you just see the flip-flopping, Fauci, oh, masks will save us. No, they won't save us. I mean, I, I mean, you know, you don't get that from me. A, I'm, you know, I'm a top trained doctor. I'm, you know, prior to this, I was the most published person in my field in the world in history, Fauci, or no one can make that claim. And on top of that, if you notice, I'm disciplined. I cite the data. I don't deviate here and there and make hyperbolic statements. I'm pinpoint. And it's that discipline that's delivered America the, to the truth. I can probably better communicate with America on healthcare issues than anybody in the world right now. And they know it. And that's the reason why they're gravitating to me. Substack's been a huge innovation. 
to be able to put something together that's evidence-based, cited, linked. We now do voiceovers where they can actually just hear our voice, interpret the data, and get this out quickly. It comes through a cell phone app or online. Uh, now, recently, cell, uh, uh, Substack and Twitter are in a dispute. Right now in Substack, I can't automatically have it published on Twitter. I have to do it manually. Twitter uh, was going fine, and, and I was taken off for about two months. Uh, and, and then there was a vote uh, during this time Elon Musk took over, and the vote was 98 to 2 to have me back on Twitter. And there was thousands and thousands of people voted. We sent that to Musk and say, listen, let Dr. McCullough on Twitter. I'm the most notable doctor on Twitter. I've tweeted, I'm the single doctor who's published the most, treated the most patients and moved this field more than anyone else. Other people who have been involved, they either haven't seen patients or they don't have the clinical experience or the academic experience. So, I mean, that's where I sit here today. And and I there, there are signs that, that my Twitter account still has a drag on it. There are operatives. Remember in the Twitter file drop, Twitter revealed about 80 F current or former FBI agents were in Twitter with CDC officers. They were inside Twitter. Now, the thing they haven't told us is, did they get rid of the FBI agents? We might as well assume they're still in there trying to manipulate Twitter and push the false narrative. And by doing so, uh, for people like me, they put drags on our accounts. I think this is what's in partly in, in uh, the Substack issue. Substack appears to have no drag on it right now, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if government agents infiltrate uh, Substack and try to uh, take it down or put a drag on it. There's clearly efforts right now at censorship, government censorship of the truth in order to push a false narrative. Almost everything in the false narrative leads to continued mass vaccination. Genetic shots every six months from babies down to half a year old, all the way up to all adults, everybody, what the government would want is us to take every six month genetic shots. Well, I think government censorship has always been there, but at this point where we're at right now, it's something that's a little bit bigger than anything they've ever really touched before. I mean, they used to influence movies in Hollywood. J. Edgar Hoover's FBI used to do that. Um, but there's right now, it's something that's so severe when it comes to the deaths and real information when it comes to you know medical standards or anything we should be doing when it comes to COVID, if you're still experiencing a place where there are mandates being forced on you and the COVID is still an issue. But you can't, I mean, there's so much where they're just either blocking information, they're shadow banning accounts. They're, I mean, look, I understand YouTube has policies and guidelines, but it's still one of the biggest platforms. I know people recommend Rumble, but then they usually ask you the question, are you on Rumble? And you're like, yeah, well, obviously you don't use Rumble because you would be able to find me if you actually did. And it's like, YouTube is just this major platform, much like Facebook and much like all these other things, but they're not allowing links to be shared. And I'm wondering, do you think that narrative's going to turn? Do you think eventually people are just going to stick to the moral high ground, which is an aspect of just letting the truth go on there? I mean, we have free speech, yes, and I understand these are private platforms, but they don't run like that. They have a little bit more power than their own private organizations. I mean, these are things where people go for their information a lot of the time. In our book, you know, we outline this biopharmaceutical complex, this vaccine syndicate, which is very powerful. You know, World Health Organization and Gates Foundation, Welcome Trust and Rockefeller Foundation, Gabby, Seppi, Unitate. We're talking about economic power, World Economic Forum, that is beyond belief. Economic power that could clearly influence the media, Twitter, Google, Facebook. They're small potatoes compared to the power of the biopharmaceutical complex. 
So I think the, the the social media is really at the will right now of this complex. And we need to ask the question, who is operating within this syndicate? Klaus Schwab, who leads the World Economic Forum, he calls people to Davos every year. Look at who's going to Davos every year, including your senators, your congressmen, your presidents. Klaus Schwab has said COVID-19 is a limited opportunity to create a new world order. That's in his book, The Great Reset. I mean, there is clearly an aspiration to have a new world order through the context of a health emergency. And that would mean using tools like social media propaganda to change people's minds and get them to accept a new world order. This vaccine agenda seems to have a heavy component of compliance in it because it's not dependent on the vaccine, the vaccine type. Remember in China, for instance, it's mainly Sinovac or Coronavac. So it can't be about Merck or Pfizer, same thing in South America. But it's some big part of the new world order is routine vaccination. Another big part of the new world order appears to be digital currency and social credit scores. This appears, another big part of the new world order appears to be climate change agenda. These things are all coalescing together. So it's up to us to figure this out, listen to the aspirations. But no, I don't think Facebook or YouTube is gonna is gonna flinch one bit because you know they're basically just saying, listen, this uh, new world order, this, this uh, biopharmaceutical complex is so big, they're the ones calling the shots. And we got FBI agents inside Twitter telling Twitter what to do. The government, US government must be a part of this. You can imagine if you're a Twitter content moderating person and you got a you got a government agent sitting next to you saying listen do this or that you're you're going to do what the government agent tells you to do so uh, we're in a we're in a whole new time right now but, but the good news is uh independent media like your show is flourishing people are flocking to the truth people are seeking me out through every avenue they're seeking you out because we're bringing people the truth without any government interference now do you have any candidates like RFK Jr. running for president that you're willing to back? Maybe if they can get you in a position, I mean, would you take a position as the WHO or the NIH? Would you get into, I feel like you would be the best to be able to give a message, at least good, better medical advice than a lot of these people are giving out there right now. You know, I've told all stakeholders, I certainly would be open to an appointed uh, position. And I'm no stranger on Capitol Hill. I've testified back in 2007 in the Congressional Oversight Panel. I've testified for the FDA and the European Medicine Agencies. Uh, but politically, I'm in the middle. You know, I'm always a split ticket voter. Uh, people have to earn my vote. And um, and I certainly will be open. I'm glad you mentioned Robert F. Kennedy. He's announcing formally his run for the presidency on the Democratic side of the ticket, uh, April 19th in Boston, 10 a.m. So if people can be there in person, uh, certainly those in the Northeast, they ought to really make a move for it. See my Twitter feed. And I have the announcement there. You certainly can go to um, Robert F. Kennedy's website. He's the nephew of John F. Kennedy. Yeah, I know. He, that's that's what scares me about him running for president. I was like, I don't know if he's going after the COVID stuff and he's going to go after the JFK stuff as as I, I hope he does. But I don't think well, that- Remember, for him, there's going to be something in it for everybody. He's an environmentalist yeah. and he's a lifelong Democrat. So there's going to be people on the left who are really going to want to see somebody who's a bona fide- environmentalist, a consumer product safety uh, uh, expert. Uh, remember from the COVID Community States program was recently published on my Substack, 25% of Americans didn't take a shot. 
25%. That's a huge voting block. And, and those are 25% of adults who are probably going to vote. Only 60% of people vote. So we, you know, Kennedy conceivably could have nearly half of the voters out of the gate. So that's a huge issue. I think uh, all the candidates running have to tell us where they stand on the vaccines. Are they supporting them? Did they support them? You know, what are they doing about vaccines, injuries, disabilities, and deaths? Where are we now on the vaccines? And I, I, if the candidates are honest, you're going to see them come around and say, yeah, listen, I took it like anybody else. I was behind it, but the data have come out bad. I, we've got to drop the vaccines and move on. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I don't think it would be too hard for a candidate to say they're sorry and move on, but th they're going to have to do that. The candidates themselves may be under the influence of the biopharmaceutical complex, and they may be afraid to say anything about the vaccines. I've been to I've been to CPAC uh, three times. I've been on stage just ahead of former President Trump. I recently went to a Ron DeSantis event in Dallas, a big event, took pictures with him. Both of those candidates are not publicly spending any time on the vaccines as a general administration issue. And certainly in any type of national program, they don't even mention them. I think with RFK Jr. running, you're going to see some interesting tactics from the government and all these other corporations that do not want that to be the option. I think you noticed when he announced it, there was a couple articles that stated, even Daily Beast said something about anti-vax RFK Jr. runs for president. And I'm like, you're going to throw out every single thing you possibly can. It's going to be really interesting to see the media tactics in this one. Oh, it was terrible. Uh, Jake Tapper on CNN said anti-vax quack conspiracy theorist Robert F. Kennedy. So that's how the nephew of John F. Kennedy was introduced as a presidential candidate. The media is deplorable. They should uh, hang their heads in shame. Uh, you know, I expect as a consumer of the media that they should at least be respectful and say Robert F. Kennedy has announced his candidacy on the Democratic ticket, and we'll be looking forward to his platform development and messaging. You know, it should be something that's cordial, but not coming out of the, the gate with like three or four negative near expletives to describe a presidential candidate. It, it's absolutely atrocious what's going on. And it's occurring, by the way, on both sides. Uh, I would comment that um, former President Trump whether one is a, a real Trump supporter, neutral, or you know a never Trumper, uh, you know everybody I'm ta talking to, no one is happy <laughs> about seeing these indictments come forward uh, and, and arraignment for um, uh, for the charges that uh, the, the the district attorney in New York has brought against him. So we're seeing a corruption of the legal process, and the media is complicit in so much of this. Well, Dr. Peter McCullough, I really appreciate the time you gave me to talk again on my show. It's always a pleasure chatting with you, but is there a place where people can find any of your links? Central place on my website, petermcculloughmd.com. That'll take you everywhere. My Substack, we've mentioned it several times, Courageous Discourse, probably one of the hottest ones out there. My book behind me, Courage to Face COVID-19, available through Amazon, but a little better deal if you go through the book website, couragetofacecovid.com. Uh, and then my podcast, America Out Loud Talk Radio, McCullough Report, uh, very big, uh, huge following internationally on McCullough Report, twice on Saturday, twice on Sunday. And I'm, I'm launching a new show in Dallas 
on AFN Network with my co-author John Lincoln be once a week TV show called The Second Opinion. So uh, like you, I'm doing everything I can to try to help the world get through these series of crises that have been put forward in the context of, uh, of health and then move on. I'm going to link all your links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.